Hi, and welcome to the Eyes Wide Open Life podcast. I'm the host, Rocco Jarman. Um, as usual, this podcast is recorded in pretty much a single sitting, and more emphasis is going to be put on content than on audio and production value. That said, um, I'm always looking for feedback, so please get on down to eyeswideopenlife.org. There's a contact page. If anyone has any info or feedback for me, I'd love to hear it. Um, if you have any questions that you'd like to submit for Ask Me Anythings, um, please go ahead and submit them in the same forum, and I'll probably write you back and get back to you. And also let me know if you do or do not want your details mentioned on the podcast episode. I need your name and your location at the very least. And, um, yeah, enjoy the episode. Ready with the next episode. So um, this is going to be an Ask Me Anything episode, um, and I'll talk in a second where I got all the questions from. Um, I received a bit of feedback from some listeners already. Some of it was, um, as you as always, as can be expected, mixed mixed reviews. So um, no one said it was terrible. But what I am hearing is some people asking for shorter, sharper content and feedback, and some people really enjoying the long format, the thoughtful pieces, and giving them lots of stuff to listen to and re-listen to. So that's very hard to navigate in between, and I think um, the only way forward possibly is what my original intention was, is to do combinations. So this is intended to be a shorter episode. Um, I've also had some feedback on the audio quality and the editing. Um, you know, I really appreciate the the offer that one of my friends um, from the United States made. Uh, he's a sound engineer, and he's, he's he does some pretty interesting music on on Spotify. I'll maybe drop a link um, at the bottom. Will Marin, and he pointed out that like the the. the you know, obviously I could do with improving my mic technique and um, there's a bit of sound engineering gap delta between what I was doing and what uh, a good standard might look like. So I'm, I'm tempted, but for the short time, for the short term, I'm going to stick to, as I said in the um, the intro episode and the, um, the opening of every other bit that I've recorded is this podcast typically gets recorded in a single sitting um and sort of stitched together on Elitu. I don't prioritize production value. Um, I'm trying to prioritize content and engagement. If it gets to the point where my engagement is suffering because of it, I'll probably have a look at it again. But I'm probably going to stick with this um, this format for a while and hope that the the content and the quality of what I have to share, is strong enough to make people listen past the the potential audio audio, audio challenges. Um, I don't think anyone's complained that it's inaudible. It's more just like there's room for room for improvement. But it's third episode. I'm pretty sure I'll get there at some point in time. So where do I get the questions from? So I fished around on the my followers from Instagram. Um, there's about 1,900 and growing at the minute, but probably about 40 or 50 active people. I think that's just how the percentages work on social media. Um, 
two of them come from people I'm working with either directly um, in a sort of life coaching mentorship perspective. Um, some come from the uh, hermetics talks and lectures that I give as well. So the subject matter will be all over the place um, for the various forms of writing, philosophy, teaching, guided meditations, etc. that I do in various fields and formats and modalities. So I hope there's something for everyone to enjoy. Okay, so the, the first question comes from Fuzia in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, the question is, explain to me your understanding of choice. Now, this comes off the back of some of the posts that I've made on Instagram trying to outline the concept of reluctance. And in speaking about reluctance, I put down what sounds like a bit of a acute Zen koan proverb sort of a thing. And I, I point out that when you look, the interplay with reluctance is the interplay between choice and surrender. And we'll get into that in a minute. But the, the point is that when and I often say this, when you finally make a choice, you surrender to that choice. And if you do manage to surrender, you had to choose to surrender. Otherwise, it wasn't a surrender. So there's this sort of paradoxical two sides of the same coin, choice and surrender. And we don't really understand the relationship um, between the two very well. And it's, it's probably useful to start by saying that Surrender is something we don't really understand as um, a Western culture, as adults, um, as people who are looking at the contemplative traditions from the East and trying to take on board the advice that comes to us by way of hippies and, and meditation teachers and um, Theravada and Dzogchen there's a lot of contemplative meditative tradition that tries to teach us surrender, non-dualism, and we don't seem to quite get our heads around it. And the irony is surrender is something we think we need to do. It's an additional thing we can fail at, we believe. And, of course, the whole premise of doing something that you can fail at is complete anathema to the idea of surrender. If you're worried about whether you're surrendering right, that's in itself the problem. There is no right way to surrender. There's, in fact, nothing to do. It's a full wholesale acceptance of the present moment, your life, your circumstances, exactly as it is, which is it's hard to understand sometimes, but if you think about it carefully, it is the quintessence of non-dualism, of Zen to accept the ordinary current moment, whatever it might look like, genuinely wishing or not wishing anything to be any different. So to understand reluctance a little bit, the thesis that I often talk about is <clears throat> that the human experience is a conscious um, arrival at this uh, midway or this constant tension point between competing 
expectations or competing impulses that we live with. <clears throat> so that you think of um, like the old Earth globe um, on a tilt with a north-south axis and, and, and then think of other imaginary axes coming out at different angles. So let's look at four of them that I talk about a lot. The first one is the north-south, the crown and the root inclination. This is the pull that we have towards our higher nature and the pull that we have towards our base nature. We are humans, which by definition is to be, to be human is to be an animal and to be moved by all of the things which animate animals. All of the impulses, the Maslowian hierarchy of needs that we try and chase, um, the bottom two rungs at least, food, shelter, sex, reproduction, society, safety. <clears throat> we seek those in very base ways and our impulses that drive us to pursue those things are baked into our DNA and baked into our dopamine cycles and we can't really avoid them. But at the same time, we also have these, um, this, this unscratchable itch to be something other and to exceed and transcend our natures, um, which gets expressed as spirituality, actualization, <clears throat> mysticism, etc. The other axes are the, the left and right, the, the feminine, the masculine, which we all have inside of us. The key one we all struggle with, of course, is the, um, the time one, which is focusing on future and past, again, for survival and avoidance of pain purposes. We're trying to retcon a past to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. We need to understand what mistakes were made. And we anticipate the future to try and avoid the same mistakes to make our life easier, more pain-free, <clears throat> because animal programming, again, means avoidance of um, pain, is a reliable way to avoid injury, which is a reliable way to avoid death. And we are preoccupied with the past and future at the expense of the present moment. And when we do sit and try and meditate and focus on the present moment, we do so reluctantly because um, our minds scream at us because it's calling us to engage with the past and the future in the, um, in the service of avoiding pain and avoiding discomfort. When we pursue our lower base natures, we do it reluctantly because we have this unscratchable itch to be something better and other. So we do that reluctantly. And when we pursue our higher natures, we do that reluctantly because it means a form of denial of our base nature and saying no to something inside of us that has a genuine hunger and a genuine want. When we try and solve our problems with our masculine sensibilities, <clears throat> the doing, the chasing, the pursuing, the fetching, we do it at um, reluctantly at the expense of our feminine intuitions. And when we pursue our the projects of our lives with our feminine intuitions, which is um, setting intent, stepping back, allowing, accepting, receiving, we do that reluctantly <clears throat> because our masculine sensibilities are similarly um, impacted. <clears throat> the last one is, excuse me, <clears throat> the last one is, the inner outer um, tension. Inner is towards the inner child and the inner experience, and outer is towards our engagement with um, the universe by virtue of relationships with other. Now, when we engage in relationships with other, when we um, sacrifice time 
with and for ourselves in the interests of connection, we do that reluctantly because it costs us energy often and engaging and living up to the expectations of the world outside means putting down the the needs within and often neglecting the inner child. So we often <clears throat> expend ourselves towards these outside um, uh, engagements and outside relationships at the cost of our um, the, the needs of our inner child. So we do that reluctantly. And if we service the needs of the inner child and we spend time with ourselves recharging, we do that reluctantly too because we know that there's always a price and the price is um, failing to connect and failing to establish and build on um, external connections. So that's the underlying <clears throat> sort of premise around this question of choice. And the the question then is explain to me your understanding of choice. And 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 my my answer is 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 somewhere in the realm of understanding that whole interplay. The first one is that reluctance is unavoidable. It's something ever present that we cannot escape. And the discomfort we feel in our lives is more often around the illusion that one of any two opposing or competing choices is the right one. And we suffer guilt or shame because of our um, ruminating and, and uh, recursive thinking about whether what we did was the right thing or not. We have regret and we feel that reluctance while we're making the choice and then we have regret um, or resentment which we project onto other people based on who or how we were forced to make a certain choice. And the point is largely it's an illusion and the only way forward <clears throat> for somebody who is living a life the way I am advocating we should practice it is to understand that reluctance is an ever-present game. It's the dividing line between yin and yang. It's a tension which will never go away. And it's also the tension which delivers much of the the impetus and drive for every conscious creature to move and be moved. Because without that discomfort of choice, there would be no imperative to engage and act. And again, the paradox between or paradoxical relationship between choice and surrender comes to mind that when you do make a choice, you surrender to a choice because there were two to make and you surrender to one of them. And the act of surrender involves choice and this is the um the intersection between fractal mathematics and human psychology so i hope that goes some way to explaining how i think or understand choice the next question i'm going to field is from a friend and colleague of mine uh, nick gregoriades who's now living in los angeles um, if anyone caught me guesting on Nick's podcast um, last month or the month before, it, we were covering <clears throat> much of the um, the backstory of um, the situation he finds himself in now. And the reason we were we doing this work together is, um, and I'm consulting with him, is because of my experience with a similar situation. So. We have a shared experience of being in our 40s and um, 
going through divorce. Uh, his situation is unique insofar as it uh, came out of the blue and it's the a six-year relationship, three of which were in um, marriage, um, which ended extremely suddenly and he's been dealing with a shock and the emotional fallout based on that. And um, I had my own set of <clears throat> sort of uh, grief and emotional trauma to, to, to process uh, of a slightly different nature. Um, and the one commonality is this, these waves of quite unrelenting emotional pain that just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. doesn't matter how much of the, the math you do to, to make choices, to, to move on and, and, it's it's a it's a thing that pretty much derails your life and it's not just um a euphemism to say emotional pain the it literally comes and manifests as physical waves of pain which you feel in quite quite um tangibly in in your chest uh, it robs you of your sleep um and it is in every sense uh holding the unwanted gifts and hands of anxiety and depression which you then have to face um, <clears throat> on top of all of the the other great baggage of guilt, shame, remorse, um, self-reflection, the burdens of, uh, of processing all of this and then trying to find your way through to forgiveness, equanimity and self-love. How do you deal with unrelenting emotional pain? Well, the first thing that needs saying is that all of the practices that we put in place, the meditation, the fasting, the ice baths, the, the yoga, the journaling, um, these are all good things. And I advocate them as being part of an effective daily practice. But for some perverse reason, they don't in of themselves really help. They don't inoculate us against these, um, these moments which arrive in pretty much every life. And so that's not enough to, to help us deal with unrelenting emotional pain. So I've got, I've got a few pieces of advice. The first piece is learn to sit with your discomforts. Sitting with your discomfort is a superpower. We are often afraid of being bored, afraid of being alone, afraid of being rejected, afraid of, and it's our fear of rather than the thing itself, which causes us the suffering. The second thing is we often have made, when, when we encounter a moment like this in our lives of pivotal rejection or pivotal change, we, we try and process it to make sure, you know, that pain never visits us again. And we try and retcon what we did wrong so we can avoid making the same mistakes. We're trying to keep ourselves safe. And at the end of the day, it's a crazy ideal because to love is to be vulnerable. And there are right ways to enter into relationships and there's right ways to practice conscious relationship, which I talk about quite a bit and I'll probably dedicate a future a podcast to that. But without the practice of consent in the context of a conscious relationship, um, even in that context, all our close relationships are, it's idealistic for us to expect them never to hurt us or never to cause us pain. They are almost perfectly designed to do exactly that and to give us the challenge and the tests, which we need to start finding better ways of dealing with. And it's the opportunities that they keep giving us that 
are invariably going to cause us pain. That is the nature of love and the nature of vulnerability. So we can't really avoid these moments. Um, the third thing is Marcus Aurelius said the mind is dyed by the color of its thoughts. What you spend your energy and attention on focusing on, <clears throat> even if it's in the interest of avoiding future pain and discomfort, if it um, has the nature of it of being recursive or constant or frequent, the, the body is designed and our mental algorithms are designed to tackle the most poignant problems and to try and avoid for them or, or uh, avoid them or um, factor for them. And effectively what that means is we are meditating our pain, meditating on our discomfort, on our suffering. And the, the brain will remain fixated on that as long as there's a negative um, uh, feeling um, as long as there's pain and discomfort, because it's trying to solve for the problem. And the longer we dwell on it, and the longer we fail to time box moments appropriate for spending our time focusing on grief, focusing on forgiveness, the more likely that it is that this is going to become uh, a regular and and uh, uh, persistent feature in our lives. <clears throat> How do we deal with this unrelenting emotional pain? We have to focus our lives on something else because the focusing on the pain and wishing it would stop is another ideal. And the reason we're in this tight spot or this difficult position already is because we are judging ourselves somehow subconsciously often for failing to live up to an ideal and surmising that this is exactly the reason why we're suffering pain and discomfort. It's a, it's a lack of perspective and it's definitely a lack of um, self-compassion and self-acceptance and definitely a lack of acceptance of the present moment exactly as it is. Our Eastern contemplative tradition has been trying to get us to um, – embrace the present moment and this is not an academic embrace of it it is embrace of it in a way embrace is probably the strong word but it's a full acceptance of the present moment asking or expecting nothing to change almost as if we asked for every moment to play out exactly as it is The last bit of advice on this is <clears throat> the power of purpose. Purpose is a most galvanizing, empowering uh, concept. The Anyone who is trying to understand the nature of suffering and the, um, the, the power of the human spirit should read Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Holocaust and... He has a first-hand account, um, by autobiographical account of his time during that, but also his observations subsequently as a, um, a psychotherapist. And his his one of his famous quotes. I'm going to paraphrase it: "Is a man can endure anything if he's doing it for a purpose, if he's doing it and it gives his life meaning. We can find new purpose." And to find purpose in suffering is to learn the kind of first-hand 
entanglement with severe pain and suffering for the express purpose of being able to understand that journey from an insider's perspective and be able to turn that into a survival guide so that we can guide and help other people that step through similar dark journeys. That is an extremely noble purpose. This world is changing so rapidly and we're becoming so fractured and disconnected. The more people that learn to reconcile their discomforts and their reluctances and their pain with grace and can teach these to other people, either through the way that they act or the way they conduct themselves or formalize it the way I'm trying to do through lessons and teachings and um, poetry and philosophy, that, that purpose that clear and noble purpose is my best advice for how to deal with um, unrelenting emotional pain. The third question I'm covering is from <clears throat> Will Marin. Um, I'm still waiting to hear back from Will exactly whereabouts in the world he, he lives, but he's definitely in the United States. And um, I've been engaging with Will for probably the better part of um, a year now. And we've had a lot of conversations around my philosophy, my poetry, and just general um, wisdom and approaches to this time of disconnection um, and general insanity that the world seems to be going through. Will's question is a bit strange for me. His question is, what are the pillars of your diet? <clears throat> now, I'm assuming... I, well, I can only guess if this means like literally what do I eat or what what are the, the philosophical pillars of my diet. So what I eat is largely uninteresting, um, <clears throat> but, but, but it ties probably closely in with my philosophy. So my partner is a, um, a vegetarian, not a vegan. Um, her reasons for that are largely due to um, – are conscience based. Um, I, I followed that diet for um, the first year that we met uh, quite closely. Um, but I found that I was getting quite unhealthy because of the amount of starch that I was eating. And I've had to ad adapt my diet. Um, first of all, it was just fish. And now I'm eating um, some free range organic meat. So obviously from a conscience perspective, that's a difficult line to tread and worth talking about. But this gets to my, my philosophy on, on diet and conscious living. So let's start with the concept of the chakras. And everyone's familiar with them. You can Google what they look like and what they mean and what the idea is. Now, in the courses that I deliver, my, my argument to the people in the room is that I don't expect anybody, nor would I hope anyone expect me, to conclusively state that there are balls or wheels or centers of actual describable energy in the human body. But definitely there is a utility to understanding human consciousness and separating them it out um, in a way that is uh, explained by the, the nodes or the points of the chakras. And this is what I mean. So the bottom is the root chakra, which is tied to um, nature, survival, and fear. Um, it's also our route to nature. 
<clears throat> the second one up is our um, sexual reproduction center. The one up from that is the gut, the stomach, the solar plexus. The one up from that's the heart. Then the one up from that is the throat, the communication center, and then the head, the intellect, and then finally on top the crown, the the compulsion that we all um, or most of us share to pursue some sort of uh, spiritual growth or spiritual pursuit. Now, again, we don't need to believe or assume that those things are there, but we can definitely relate to the way our consciousness works in terms of the human experience. So we are all driven by by fear in the interests of survival. That's the root chakra. We are all driven by um, these impulses of um, penetration and receptivity in the interests of, of creation or uh, fertilizing or receiving or gestating ideas. We all share the the understanding of nurturing and power um, as per the 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 stomach or the gut chakra and we understand the the concept of love and connection via the heart we understand the concept of communication via the throat and thinking via the the head so this is a great way to break up um, the different aspects of consciousness in in the human experience and my advocacy is always you don't you don't sit on a mat and meditate your way into um, balancing your chakras or rising the kundalini. You live your way into that. So the way to manage the root chakra is to begin with love, not with fear, with everything. So you start in the heart, not the head or the root. You start in the heart. And the second one up is the our relationship with sex, sexuality, intimacy. The second, the third one then is our relationship with um, food and our diet. And in the same way that we don't meditate our way <clears throat> into balancing any of the other chakras, you don't meditate your way into good stomach chakra. You, you 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 diet and you live your way into a conscious relationship with your food. So the pillars of my diet are around conscious, conscious awareness, gratitude, um, pragmatism. Um, I try eat as ethically as I can when I can. Um, I try and make the most conscious ethical choices uh, that are available to me at the time. If that choice is robbed in some way or I have less of a choice, I try and make sure that I have a relationship with the people that are making the food or procured the food or cooked the food. Um, and that's as simple as having a relationship with the people that make my coffees. So I drink almond coffees these days now i know that there's some uh implications with using uh, almonds as a source of milk substitute but this is the point to my philosophy i don't think there's any place we can turn or go to where there isn't some form of argument about some form of impact to suffering on some scale somewhere and i understand that the relationship that we have to um, industrial farming and meat production in this world is sick and it needs to change, and it's an endemic, an indictment of our just general lack of connection to everything and each other, and our lack of connection to nature, and our our, our willingness to be blind to the suffering of other creatures. I'm, it's not lost in me. Um, so I have to make peace with the level of choices that I can make and what I can control, and um, it's becoming 
especially during COVID, it was quite hard to get hold of the foods that we wanted to, and we had to make some some pragmatic choices. So what I can live with on my conscience is trying to be mindful, at least, of um, every meal that I eat, um, every meal that I prepare, um, trying to source from the local growers and farmers markets uh, wherever we can. We, we have a, a weekly shop on Saturdays. And one of the other and then, of course, preparing those meals mindfully and sharing them mindfully uh, and, and practicing connection while we're doing that and having gratitude for um, everything along the chain that provided that meal for us, which are allowing us to live, continue to live conscious lives. It's idealistic. I fail sometimes. I fail often. Um, I, I ca- cannot be sanctimonious because I know that my choices are far from perfect. <clears throat> and I don't advocate sanctimony from anybody, and I don't advocate um, – but I do advocate sustainability and consciousness. Do what you do so that the choices are sustainable on the environment and do what you're doing in a way that you can sustain and you can keep doing without beating yourself up. Um, And the final word I'll say on this is the importance of eating organic food and specifically organic food vegetables that are grown in soil. So Dr. Zach Bush is a big influencer of my thinking. He's a, um oncologist that has run um, palliative care hospices for people that have been to treat people with um, terminal cancers. He is also on all seven of the authoritative or the boards of authority in terms of health practice in the United States. I don't know what they are, but they exist. You can Google them. He's also a very strong advocate for against Monsanto, which are now Bayer, and the um, proliferation of um, glyphosate in sprays and the use of genetically modified crops. Now, he's not a conspiracy theorist. He's a very serious scientist. And his um, advocacy and and insights is on the fact that our food used to be medicine and that the way in which crops are grown and distributed and utilized at the moment is a function of uh, shareholder capital growth and the free market economy, not a case of um, health and wellness. And Monsanto have two big crimes, uh, that they're responsible for. The one is the proliferation of um, glyphosate, which is uh, this chemical ingredient in in this this, uh, universal pesticide that they have um, sprayed on plants, which are now poisoning rivers and now is poisoning the ocean. It doesn't break down. It lives in the soil. It poisons the soil. It kills all the microbes and bacteria that um, promote good gut health. And more than that, when it gets into the human body, it creates um, fundamentally leaky gut syndrome. It causes the very thin epithelial layer of skin, which forms the barrier between you and the outside world in your stomach, one cell wall thick. It causes some of those cell walls to move apart. And the bits from our food and from our diets, the high gluten contents, etc., that can now get through those gaps into our bloodstreams is the source of all of our inflammatory diseases, of which most cancers and most other il- uh, illnesses, including, um, yeah, 
without being a conspiracy theorist, this is also just um, an arguable fact. The the the, the causes behind um, autism is not bloody vaccines. It's uh, leaky gut syndrome from parents who um, gestated uh, a children in utero and gave birth to somebody with an, a, a compromised immune system and a compromised um, uh, gut health. And it's responsible for more mental health and more physical health issues um, in the world than we are aware of. And that is a far, that is the primary issue to resolve is getting glyphosate out of the soil and off of our plants and foods that we eat. And the second thing is, so in the one breath, in, in the one hand, Monsanto poisoned us by putting glyphosate in everything. This is the active ingredient in Roundup as well, the weed killer we use on our lawns and paving at home. And the second way in which they are slowly killing the world populace is by use of genetically modified um, seed crop, which means that the genetic modification isn't evil or bad in of itself, but something is lost. The baby that is lost with the bathwater is the ability for the plants that are grown to contribute to a um, uh, a handoff, a chemical handoff process, which is called the shikame pathway. This allows a, a handoff of um, uh, chemical compounds and nutrients, which are in a sort of food chain from um, micro in the soil to funguses, to the plants that grow in the soil, to the um, us or the animals that eat those plants. So Shikame Pathway, you can you can Google this and do your own research, but um, you can also just watch one of the videos um, that Zach Bush posts uh, on the subject. Zach Bush, MD, Z-A-C-H, B-U-S-H, M-D, Zach Bush, M-D. <clears throat> and what he's... Um, point is that given the fact that the shikame pathway is no longer um, present or capable due to the genetic modification, it means the plants that we eat, uh, we're unable to get the aromatic amino acids from them as part of our nutrient base. So we get the calories, but we don't get the nutrients that we would need, which would turn our, um, our food into medicine. And food is supposed to be medicine. So that's a long-winded way of me strongly suggesting a couple of very basic principles um, and ones that I live by. Uh, conscious living and the way that we uh, tackle and pursue our diet should be um, via consciousness, via connection, via um, minimizing the impact on the environment wherever we can, um, but trying to do it in a way that's sustainable for us and sustainable for the environment and lean ever more towards better and better and better practices and gently try and communicate and educate our loved ones to make them understand what the options and the implications are. And then for each of us to step up and exercise that form of conscious connection by making relationships with the people that make our food and prepare our food and making sure we prepare and make our food consciously ourselves and share our, our meals consciously with, with, with loved ones. 
And then secondly is to arm ourselves with um, information, which I'm shocked at this stage isn't absolutely common and mainstream, which is not conspiracy theory. It's just simple facts about nutrition and about health and about the willingness of um, companies and industries to do things for and to the the rest of humanity, which are basically bad for us, and do it in the interest of making money and preserving profits, which should come as no surprise to anybody. So the last one I'm going to do is um, from somebody who's asked to remain an uh, anonymous. They don't want to be announced or mentioned on the on the podcast. But this comes from um, one of my, my students in my classes. <clears throat> you seem to have a love-hate relationship with Stoicism or Stoic philosophy. I've seen you be quite critical in some ways, but you also label yourself as a Stoic and do courses on Stoicism. <clears throat> How do you reconcile that? <clears throat> so <clears throat> it's not Stoic philosophy or Stoicism that I'm critical of. <clears throat> it's the short-sightedness of Stoicism in the present moment that we have in the world that I'm, I find worthy of um, addressing. And the second thing is the Instagram is awash with people. It's a bit like, like CrossFit as a fad or, um, you know, people who listen to uh, there's a few podcasts, which people listen to and they just hang on everybody's word. They're, they're the same um, sort of psychophant just reposting without adding to or, or, or questioning anything of the content happens around um, <clears throat> uh, Terence McKenna, Alan, Alan Watts. These are, are, are two absolute uh, gifts unto the world, which, which you should just devour everything these people ever had to say. And similarly with the Stoics, that wisdom is, is profound, um, and it's one of the few Western contemplative traditions that, that really stands up against what um, the gems and the, the vaults of treasure we have discovered from the East. So Stoicism basically is a philosophy which centers around the premise that you cannot control things outside of your control. It sounds paradoxical or obvious, perhaps, but th therein lies an invitation to limit your concerns and your daily efforts to, um, yeah, practice equanimity and, and wisdom and grace and, and the, the wisdom is around determining which items or which things about life, your life, you can control and can or can't change. Um, making yourself responsible for the ones that you can, which by deductive reasoning is really only your mind and your thinking and your attitude towards things. And practicing grace and equanimity by accepting and dealing with that reality and really worrying about very little else in this world. Um, in other words, what's the fundamental nature of reality? Um, what's the answer to the meaning of life? Um, a Stoic is someone who makes his own purpose by living a good day and deciding what a good person or a good man should be 
um, but very much from the rubric or of being responsible solely for your own set of circumstances <clears throat> and your own um, mental engagement and responses to your circumstances. So that is that's a beautiful philosophy, which I have no problem with in of, in of itself. But we we're in a a phase of human evolution at the moment where <clears throat> the human experiment could end quite catastrophically and it could end in a way that is avoidable. Um, we could be slowly killing the planet through um, climate change. We could um, absolutely wreck ourselves on the back of a pandemic because we refuse to act responsibly and because we have um, had our trust broken by our institutions, our politicians and our, um, our experts and our media. So we, we could be facing any form of, of war and in, or it could just be a series of global cataclysms you know, floods, earthquakes, um, meteors hitting the earth, etc., asteroids hitting the earth. Any one of these would require a high level of human cooperation and collaboration to address and to solve. And to do that, we we need to counter for the way in which humans are becoming disconnected and polarized into factions and we need to be better than ourselves and be aware of our human weaknesses when it comes to lack of um, critical thinking, our cognitive biases um, and our other human weaknesses. <clears throat> and a diet of pure stoicism doesn't get us there because it's, slightly unkind but not completely untrue to say that a stoic would, would just not worry themselves with all this because that they might just deem it to be some, one of those things in the categories of things I cannot change or cannot control. And even though the evolution that needs to take place is one of choice at the individual level, the act of collaborating and cooperating is one of valuing connection with others and valuing other. And we don't get at that on a diet of pure stoicism. And the second reason I appear critical is because someone could literally be providing um, healthy, powerful, meaningful answers and ideas to the kinds of problems we're facing in the world today, which haven't existed before. We have a unique set of circumstances here. And they would literally be ignored um, in favor of reposting something from Epicurus or Marcus Aurelius or, or Terence McKenna or Alan Watts. And all their wisdom is profound, but those men are not here. We are here. And we need to start generating and engaging with new ideas. That's not to say we need to throw out the wisdom of Stoicism. But just drinking from the, the teat of history the whole time, history definitely has something to teach, but it has, you know, paradoxically has no pupils. But to simply suck on the teat of um, historical stoic wisdom is to never grow up and to never actually engage with the world and to never try and forge out 
new paradigms or complementary ideas which are going to help us meaningfully tackle the issues we have today. And simply reposting something from somebody else is not adding anything new to the world. Sure, it has a positive net effect of um, increasing awareness of Stoic philosophy, but we need now more than ever the um, the courage to listen to and try new ideas. Um, the con- you know the, the the courage to speak them and and the and the conviction to try them, because our old ideas are well and truly failing us. And some of the existential crises that we fail are self-induced and they're avoidable. And the only way we get to avoid these things is through value of connection and our ability to have conversation, to debate constructively, which we are all universally failing at. And... Some of the the people that have very large platforms are doing nothing more than sitting spruiking stoic wisdom from the past. And it's a form of navel-gazing or a form of circle-jerking. There is, we need to get our heads out of our asses fundamentally. And um, that is the way in which I reconcile myself as a, a stoic because I very much hold with <clears throat> Stoic philosophy in, in many, many respects. Um, and I consider myself a Stoic, but I also realize that there are some inherent shortcomings in the way that it's been practiced and shared at the moment. So, yeah, that pretty much um, those are my thoughts on Stoicism. I hope that answers the question. Okay, so that was the first few uh, questions answered in the AMA in the first Ask Me Anything episode. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts, um, how you think that went. Um, There were many more questions. Um, Some of them were longer, um, and I was uh, concerned that they were going to go past a a sort of um, a a short episode uh, hard stop time limit. So I'll probably, if I get many more, I'll just run more Ask Me Anythings. Um, I'm going to try to keep these episodes down to uh, more bite-sized, digestible uh, audio chunks so that people can listen to them in shorter settings. But um, if there's any other requests or any other um, information you're chasing, any other feedback that you'd like to give me, I actually really do want to hear from you. Please go to my website, eyeswideopenlife.org. There's a contact page or just email me at info at eyeswideopenlife.org and I will get back to you.